Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, joined by the mad scientist himself, the beating heart of the show, Coach Trevor Connor. Here on Fast Talk, we've been known to periodically quote a study or two. While in the past, athletes mostly figured out their training by trial and error or what felt right, nowadays, in this era of marginal gains, no coach or serious athlete can get away without some understanding of physiology. Winning at the highest level requires digging through the science to find those little nuggets that translate to real gains. The problem is, while many of us read the science, a lot of us don't know how to interpret it or when it's good research that draws useful conclusions or bad research that will lead us astray. That's made particularly complicated by the fact that there are many well-conducted studies that, because of the nature of their methods, outcome goals, or the size of their study group, may lead you to draw conclusions you shouldn't. So today, we're going to take a deep dive into the physiology research itself and give you some tips on how to both read and interpret the science. We'll discuss, first, the basic structure of a research study. Next, some basic concepts you need to understand in order to read research. Third, we'll then dive deeper into the methods section. That's the section everybody loves to skip over, but we're going to talk about why it's so important. Next, we'll talk about some preferences among researchers, such as their tendency to test in the lab and not on the road, and why they love VO2 max tests, despite the fact that they don't actually correlate well with performance. Next, we'll discuss a study's endpoints, what they're measuring, and why that is so important. Then we'll learn about the concept of the false null hypothesis and things that can influence it, such as study length and the number of participants. Finally, we'll talk about how the data revolution in cycling is allowing for some truly unique studies. Our primary guests today are Dr. Jim Peterman, a professor of exercise physiology at Ball State University, who got his PhD while balancing a professional cycling career, and Nate Wilson, a former elite U23 racer and head coach at Catalyst Coaching. Along with our primary guests, we talked with cyclocross legend and longtime coach Katie Compton, and also Dr. Kieran O'Grady, physiologist with Team Dimension Data. As high-level coaches, both need to keep up on the research. They each shared thoughts on what they look for to know they can trust a study. Finally, we touched base with Grant Holicky, a top coach at Forever Endurance, and one of his athletes, Max Chance, who had a unique take on the research. Now, are you ready to be blinded by science? Let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Well, it wasn't long ago that a couple regular guests that we've had on the program, Colby Pierce and Frank Overton, were sitting in our podcast room. Trevor was also here, of course. The three of them, all wearing Whoop straps, all big aficionados, if you will, of the Whoop strap. And here I was. Well, I, I lend my uh, Whoop strap to Trevor, so that was mine that he was wearing. But I was, I was naked. I was without my Whoop strap. And you guys were just nerding out about how cool it was, and I was feeling left out, honestly. I'll admit it, you were taking extraordinary pride in your lack of... <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. I, you, you know, know I'm, you I'm, are. I don't want to be bionic, honestly. I just want to be all natural. Yep. So who's getting a whoop strap next week, and who <laughs> actually requested it? 
Yeah, you know, you, you, you've brought me over to the, the dark side, the data side. I guess I'm one of you guys now. I need, my, I need my data to know how fast I can be, how recovered I am, what my sleep quality is, all these things. I miss it. Well, you knew we'd get you there. But as your coach, you know my feeling about this. It's not just about going out and blindly doing the training. This is something that's going to give you an idea of where you're at, how you're recovering, what's going on with heart rate variability, all these things that are going to tell you, here's what I should be doing with my training. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Well, we're excited to have Aftershocks as a sponsor of this show because these things are essentially made for cyclists. You go out on a ride and you don't want to have something shoved in your ears so that you can't pay attention to traffic or the people you're riding with or other sounds that help you understand and be safe out on your ride. And these Aftershocks headphones use bone conduction to transmit sounds through your bones to your ears rather than through the ear canal itself so you can pay attention to uh, your surroundings at the same time you're listening to your favorite podcast or music. But at the same time, these things last a really long time. The new Aeropex model lasts up to eight hours. So, so even the longest Trevor rides... Uh, I'd say about half a ride. Half, half of a Trevor ride or, or half of Dirty Kanza for, for the average person, you'll have your Aeropex in your ears, or sorry, not in your ears, and be listening to your favorite music. And finally, as you all know, cyclists ride in the rain, they ride in the mud, and they sweat a lot. And the Aftershocks Aeropex in particular is IP67 rated for waterproofness to withstand any element. This episode was sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for cyclists providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks bundles, visit Aftershocks.com. That's A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z.com and use code FASTTALK. All right. We are sitting down in the Coach Connor studio. Boulder, Colorado, Nate Wilson, coach at Catalyst Coaching, owner 
of yes. Catalyst, yes. owner of Catalyst owner. Coaching, sitting here with us. Also a member of the USA Cycling Development staff. Yeah. Title at the moment, I believe, Performance Director for the Road and Track Programs. So a little bit more uh, overarching, but uh, two years with the U23 Development Program. And we've got Jim Peterman, Dr. Jim Peterman, sitting in his lab coat in Muncie, Indiana. Ball State University is a research associate there. And he's looking out his window at the David Lenderman Memorial. What what kind of building? What's in that building? I don't know if it's a memorial. That makes it sound like he's died. <laughs> I guess that's true. Okay. Letterman's still alive. <laughs> that's yeah. he's, So what's in the Letterman building? Not to get too far off track. Oh, man. Now you're hitting me. Pretty hard question. Is it um, like the, the film the film production? Yeah. The uh, communications department? Something like that? Yeah, the media building, I guess. Along those lines. Cool. So there's no lab rats in that building, is what you're telling us. No lab rats. They're all snakes. <laughs> all snakes. It, show business? Is that a show business uh, joke? I guess that was, that, that's a good one. I was thinking of other uh, animals that get tested. Snakes <laughs> pop <off> the mind. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, anyways, we're sitting down with some... I'm going to say it. We're sitting down with three nerds and me today. Oh, boy. Well, I've been excited about this one. <laughs> I know. This is a whole episode of me discussing all these cool studies that I like. Exactly. Exactly. So you guys out there, you listeners of Fast Talk, know that Trevor is a connoisseur, an aficionado of research literature. He loves to sit down by the fireside with his snifter of cognac and read the latest in Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, the British Journal of metabolism, whatever it might be. so close. (laughs) Well, I know there's others, but I was trying to make up one that sounded a little goofy. (laughs) Anyways, he likes to cite from these sources. And you might ask yourself, where does he come up with this stuff? How does he know how good this research is? How does he understand it all with all of that dense language in the method section in the this literature that he likes to quote from and and for the most part, fast talk episodes are based off of a lot of hard science. So today we want to talk about that type of research, how it's revolutionized training, but also some of the misconceptions that can be brought into our world as lay people from that science. So Trevor, what's your preface to this episode? Well, this is the point where Jim cuts in and goes, well, actually, he's completely full of it. He's never read a single study. So. <laughs> Tell you well, on only the, the conclusion, man. Only the conclusion. <laughs> I, I've been excited about this one, and then I got completely overwhelmed last night because I was just going through all these old studies going, oh, we should talk about this one. We should talk about that one and built this whole list. And I'm like, wait a minute. We only got an hour, hour and a half. So I think my preface to this one is I'm ultimately going to be disappointed because we're going we're gonna to hit the stop and the record button. I'm like, but I want to talk about all these things. <laughs> There's always a part two. That is fair. Jim, do you want to give us the, we don't want to do a, a full lecture on how to read research, but do you want to give the, the basics, what a research study is, what are some of the, the things to know about in a research study uh, that, that's relevant to the rest of the conversation? I guess when we're talking about studies, what we're really talking about is the papers that we can actually read. And that's what, I guess as consumers or researchers, that's what we end up seeing as the end product. A paper is going to have really going to start off with an abstract abstract kind of like the kind of like a movie trailer i guess usually way more boring than a movie trailer <laughs> i gotta say 
The abstract is also known as the part that most people read and then they don't go into the rest of the study. <laughs> so. It's a summary. <laughs> the troublemaker. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives you a quick uh, summary depending on what what journal you're reading from. It's you know anywhere from, I'll say, 100 to 300 words long. So it's a real short summary. Great for current attention spans. You really need to read the rest of the paper to get a real true understanding of, of what's in there. So that rest of the paper starts off with an intro, kind of giving you the, the background, setting up the reasons why the study occurred. Then you've got the method. We're taking a negative look at thing, um, things. Method is probably what everyone skips, uh, but that's, that's yes. really important. Then we've got the results. The results are going to really just tell you what you saw. There's no interpretation of those results. It says this caused that. And then... Probably everyone's favorite is the discussion section. Discussion really is going to take those results and tell you what they mean or what the authors think they mean, how that applies to real life. So it's kind of that we're going to tell you what we're going to talk about, then we're going to explain how we're going to research it, then we're going to tell you what our results are, then we're going to discuss our results. And by the way, I I love that a, a few journals have so accepted the fact that nobody reads the methodology. They've now moved the methodology to the end in like an eight point font that you need a magnifying glass to read. But it's important. It's amazing how many studies where people just trust the results, trust the discussion, don't go into the methods. And there's actually can be some real, real issues there. I guess that brings up a point in my mind about if a study is published in a reputable journal, you would think that the journal would vet how well the study was done to begin with and they would have looked into those methods and think ah, we approve of this well you you bring up a good point there that a proper scientific study a proper journal is supposed to be peer-reviewed where there are every journal has a list of reviewers um, and when a study is submitted they, they will have two or three reviewers who will go through it and, and question the methodology question the discussions and those reviewers need to approve it before it can be published. So that is technically what should be the vetting process. Right, right Jim? Um, I think the other important thing to keep in mind is that there's really different levels of journals. Uh, you have some of the highest impact journals, the ones that get the most attention. Those are going to be the hardest to get into. Those, you have to have really strong methods. People are really going to check those over. For the, the lower journals, you know, incorrect methods are still not going to be okay. British Journal of uh, uh, British um, Journal British Journal of Rat <laughs> Metabolism and uh, Expectoration. Yeah, yeah. So if we were to submit something to that, you know, maybe they'd let a few things, not necessarily slide, but uh, you might have to justify why why your methods were not as, as uh, good as they could have been. I guess the other thing I'd interject on methods is like on the I think on the coach perspective. You can read an abstract and the results in discussion and feel pretty good about what came out of it. And it might be that the methods were well done and it's in a great journal. But I think reading the methods is also where you really understand the context in which those results occurred, like the testing procedure. And I think as far as like then when we're trying to take it from novel research to real world application, having a good idea of what context those results occurred in is huge in terms of like, should we actually be applying this or does it not really make sense to the context we want to apply it to? Right, right. 
which is some of the things we're going to get into. And I, I can't wait for that part of the conversation because there is there is one study where the methods were actually very good. They just didn't. And you see this actually somewhat frequently. They don't apply at all to any sort of real world scenario. So before we start talking about these particular issues, Jim, what are some of the other things that we just need to to have some background on? So there's that that N number or letter. There's the P. It seems to all be letters. Uh, we could talk about the bell-shaped curve, but what are some of these, the, a few of these things that, that are helpful to know about? N is one of them. So N uh, refers to the sample size, so how many people were in the study. Um, you have a small N that can lead to a lot of different problems, but getting a large N, a large number of people to participate in the study can also be really difficult to do. But just knowing the N is, is an important thing to know. That's usually in the abstract, or you find that in a message or, or a results section there. P, the p-value, that's everyone's favorite. That's kind of a big hot topic thing nowadays. So the p-value is, let's see if I can do this right. <laughs> the p-value refers to the chance of the difference you saw occurring due to just random chance. So if you have a p-value less than 0.05, you would say the difference you observe occurs less than 5% of the time. Randomly, yeah. So that's randomly, correct. Right. So as scientists, usually what we say is we're looking for a p-value of less than 0.05. So if something happens 4% of the time randomly, that's something we're willing to live with just because we, that's such a small, small chance. Right. And so a really important thing to point out there is that the standard is a p-value of 0 0.05. So as you said, that's five times out of 100, you're going to have a false null, uh, null hypothesis, correct? Did I get that right? Correct. The, the issue with going too tight with that, saying you know we want to have one out of 200, is then you're, you run the risk of actually having a true correlation, a true result. That because you're being so tight on the on the p value, you don't see it. So you you have to find that balance. Right, right. And then there's also a reliance on the p value. You know, if you see a significant p value, the difference you actually observed. You know, if you went from one to one point one, does that actually make a difference in terms of performance? Is it worthwhile to to do this intervention? So the one I wanted to bring up is just because this is one that uh, that I really care about is the law of the bell-shaped curve. It's remembering that even when you find a real result in a study, so for example, the classic example is height. You can say the average height of a male is five foot eleven. I actually don't know what it is. I'm making this up completely. That doesn't mean that all males are five foot eleven. It means that you have this bell-shaped curve where you see most males being somewhere right around five foot eleven. So you can see a lot that are five foot ten, five foot nine, six feet, six feet one. As you get further and further away from five foot eleven, you're going to see very few people. So you might even see somebody who's over seven feet tall, but that's a rarity. Just like it, it's rare, you're going to see somebody who's under five feet tall. This is true with almost any results. There's always some form of a bell-shaped curve. And that's important to remember because when you have a big study that finds a result and says, here's the conclusion we drew, you don't know if you're that five foot 11 person or you're the seven foot four person. So they might find a trend that's true of almost everybody, but you could be that big outlier and that might not apply to you. So always remember that when you, you study these results that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that 
every one of us has somewhere where we're an outlier on that bell-shaped curve. Some more than others, Trevor, some more than others. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> you I am a strange right and odd man. man. <laughs> <laughs> Repeatability, I know, is one of, the, one of the key things science likes to be able to repeat results. Yeah. Uh, this has come up in the news uh, maybe in the last year or two. Some studies just not being able to be repeated. We're doing the exact same message and finding different results. So that's one of the important things we want to keep in mind when thinking about the, these studies we're going to talk about is if you got another 10 folks to participate in intervention, are you going to see the same results as this, this original study? And that's not something that's always done very well in science. It's hard for a scientist to go and get funding and say, I want to repeat a study that's already been done, which needs to happen. So what they'll do is they'll say, I mostly want to reproduce this. And sorry, I put repeatability in the outline, but we really should be using the word reproducible. So they'll just say, we, we want to try to reproduce the, this past study, but here's our little twist on it to expand on the knowledge. Right, right. You add something a little bit different. You can reproduce the results, but also do something a little bit novel. And this can be really important. I mean, one of the Examples I remember from uh, my graduate work is we talked about all the vitamin C research of Linus Pauling that had been so big in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They've never been able to reproduce it. And, and there's now is a belief that he might not have had real results. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure, especially now, to get this funding. Can you think of any other good examples? Has there been any in the that you can think of in the in the sports world? In terms of reproducibility? Where they, they couldn't reproduce it and, and we look back on it and say those might not have been those might have been fabricated. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's necessarily it's a little bit different maybe, but in terms of fabrication, it's almost a different type of fabrication. In terms of looking at how efficiency might change with with training. There is uh, somewhat famous study on a professional athlete, professional cyclist who won a handful of tours. Oh, I know and, this one. Yeah. Is he still? Uh, I'll leave it at that. Is he still considered a champion? Um, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, this uh, this individual um, was tested a number of times throughout his career, and they found that efficiency improved. But as we know now, there was some... Uh, other factors? Yeah, some other factors, some other improvements that this athlete was doing that may have influenced that science. So if we were to, to try and repeat or reproduce those results, it's going to be really difficult to do. It's going to be a different... Subject. Different athlete. <laughs> different environment. Yes. Well, there was a very recent study about another current or recently current, however you want to say it, uh, tour winner, who had also very interesting improvements in both VO2 max and efficiency, which is very, 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 very rare. Yeah. And again, no idea who they are. It was just a recent tour winner. We don't know who it was. I mean, it's, it's tough with a lot of the, the, the cycling science research in the 90s and in early 2000s, because a lot of that on elite athletes, what we call now the world tour, like, but they were taking something else. 
So do we want to believe that that research or not? That's kind of a, a tough thing to, to know. Well, let's move on to some of the issues that uh, can be a part of research, um, good and bad research. And why don't we start with you, Jim? Let's go back to that method section and why it's so important. Yeah, so I think as we talked about, everyone kind of wants to trust the method, but you can't just trust the message that people did. Uh, Got to know what they did, who was included in the study, how many people were included in the study. Uh, one of the big things is whether or not the methods are actually confounding the findings. So one of the the things I think most people are probably familiar with is the placebo effect. So if you are given a pill, just a sugar pill, but told you, but told it's going to make you faster, you're going to go faster. So there's this, this placebo effect that sometimes hard to control for within a research study. So if we wanted to, to study altitude training, pretty hard to hide the fact that you're taking someone up to altitude. You have to consider that placebo effect when you are, are looking at the results. Someone knows that going to out, or believes that going to altitude will, will help them in taking the altitude. They're probably getting improvement just from that. One that they actually had a really hard time studying for a while was fish oil supplements because they taste fishy. <laughs> so it was yeah. very hard for people to uh, to hide when somebody had the placebo versus the, the actual supplement. Right. And there's there's a lot of unique ways you can kind of get around it. Some of those, some of these are difficult, some are not. Take it a step further. There are times where you actually have very good methodology but the methodology might not actually give you the results that you are looking for. So an example I love to give, uh, and I spent a while last night looking for this study because somebody showed it to me as evidence that you should never ride more than an hour and always just do high intensity work. <laughs> and I wish I had gone right home and downloaded that study. I'll kick myself for, for never doing that. But he showed me the study and, and the title of the study was something along the lines of HIIT work has greater gains than moderate, uh, steady riding, something along those lines. And they were very clear about that in the conclusions. But when you look at the methodology, they did exactly what researchers should do, and they controlled as many variables as possible. And one of those variables that researchers in this field love to control is work. So they wanted, and so simplify here, think of, they wanted everybody when they did a workout to burn about the same number of calories. So the group that was doing intervals, their workout was about 22, 25 minutes, as I remember. But the group doing the, quote, long, slow distance was doing about 44 minutes. So very well-controlled, good study in terms of the methodology. It's just when they controlled for work like that, they couldn't draw the conclusion that they drew. It would have been very okay for them to have said, yeah, high-intensity work is far more effective at producing gains than recovery rides. Nobody read that in the methodology. And the guy who pointed it out to me and said, you never need to do a ride over an hour, uh, he had never read through the methods. And I showed that to him. I'm like, can't, can't draw that conclusion. Sorry. Yeah, results totally valid for what they did, but not how it would work in practice. Like right. if someone's going to try long aerobic training, it's going to be a much greater difference. Right. 
So it, particularly in, in the cycling world or in the endurance sport world, what are some other things to look for in the methodology that you guys can think of? Kind of going off of the example you just did, Trevor, the people you recruited, actual participants themselves, what what level are they? Are they your average Joe? Are they sedentary? Are they world-class athletes? That can all make a really big difference. Which is a, a really good point. And not something that a lot of people look at, but there there's an expression that you take a couch potato off the couch and have them do anything, they're going to get fitter. Yeah, I don't know that every scientist that's doing research, generally speaking, knows what an elite athlete is. Sometimes they'll describe them as such, but you and I would look at that person and say they ride six hours a week. That doesn't, you know, they're not an elite athlete relative to the population we know. Right. So, or even what they define as trained versus untrained. Right. And yeah. That's right. definitely all reason to read the methods. Oh, I remember doing the, so my, my research in Boulder, a lot of the studies I did were on sedentary folks. It was kind of the joke was we had Boulder sedentary. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was, that's a unique population. Yes. And they're not sedentary like the rest of the country. Oh, I think one of the other issues is that there's just not well-defined terminology for for athletes, so what what Nate may call average, I might call elite. You also have to look at in the methods how they define that. Right. Um, a lot of the times, it's how much they're training, what their race times are, what their their ranking is within the world. There's a number of different ways to look at that. You're only going to find that in the method. Abstract introduction or discussion might say elite athletes. Uh, improve when they do this, but you need to look at the methods to see what they define as elite athletes. So I can tell you, whenever I read a study, the first two things I look at in the methods, if it's any sort of cycling study with a physiological test, is one, who are the subjects? So you always want to read, and they'll give you some background. You know, these are just regular college students who exercise a little bit, or these were people who participated in the world uh, in the Tour de France, then you know you got a very different population. The other thing I like to look at is if they did a VO2 max test or a ramp test or any sort of physiological test, what was their protocol? Because there are as nearly as many protocols as there are studies, uh, sometimes feels. A lot of different ways you can do those tests, and you can get very different results depending on on how they they run that VO two max or or lactate test. And Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but especially with protocols, I remember I remember you saying there's certain ways researchers like to lean for what protocols they use that are based much more on where they're going to find a significant difference rather than where they're going to show uh, like a new applicable finding being a little more lean towards a time-to-exhaustion testing compared to something that's maybe more field-replicative or something. Time-to-exhaustion test, for, for folks who don't know, basically what it sounds like. Say we're going to have you cycle at, at a VO2 max power, however, that, however we want to define that, and you're just going to pedal for as long as you can go until you're exhausted. Then that's when we hit stop on the stopwatch. Those kinds of tests can help researchers find a difference more than, um, let's say, a time trial out out on actual roads where there's a lot of other factors that can come into play. 
So I did a, an interview with Jared Berg over at uh, CU Sports, and I'll throw this in, but I think he was the one who went on the rant about time to exhaustion test because he made the point, when was the last time you did a race that was to exhaustion? Where it was, every rider go until you can't go anymore, and whoever's still going wins. So you guys are getting into the, well, the, the, the study might be very well designed again, is the the end result is, is whatever metric they're using really applicable to, to racing. And, and that's a great example. There's been a lot of studies where they showed, hey, we saw improvements in time to exhaustion, but that's not the way racing works. It's not a time to exhaustion thing. Right. And I guess researchers like to make a, a jump that if you see an improvement in time to exhaustion, that's probably going to apply to a, a racing situation. Now, whether or not that actually happens, that's up for debate, I guess. Maybe we're all racing the wrong way. <laughs> Holding yeah. too much back. Holding too much back, exactly. Why aren't we all collapsing right. off of our bikes when we're finished? But I think it is interesting because there's, I think there's a room for a lot of interpretation. Because on one hand, time to exhaustion isn't directly replicative or applicable to most of the races we're doing. So it's easy to say, okay, well, the context in which we saw this result maybe doesn't really apply. But then the devil's advocate interpretation is, yeah, like we just said a minute ago, I think if we're seeing an improved time to exhaustion at a power that is applicable to our racing, like, I don't know, on a simple level, wouldn't that be good? Like we can do this power for longer. So I, I feel like it's always a gray area. Right. Which is probably why they're, they still use it, but you do just have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. So example I'll give you where it was probably misapplied was some early research that I read on massage that said, well, massage has no gains whatsoever. So I dug into the study, and what they did is they had the these group of athletes train. Then they got a massage. Then the next day, they, one of the studies, I think, did a time to exhaustion test. The other study did a VO2 max test and saw no change in either of those variables and said, therefore, a massage doesn't do anything for you. I would argue that that's not really a test of what massage is trying to produce for you. Right. An alternative way would be looking at, I don't know, a pretty high training load for a sustained period between two groups and seeing if the group getting daily massage somehow recovered better or something, you know, yeah. like maybe that's the application we're looking for. Well, so what they've done with the massage research and I, this is, these are some of the studies that I dug up last night. And I was really <laughs> excited to talk about and I, I can really dig into this one because I actually did this interview with uh, a Dr. Titus who uh, wrote a whole review on massage and the conclusion he had to draw on the, the, review was we aren't really seeing any gains to massage but when i talked to him he started ranting on all this he's like <laughs> hey they're they're measuring the wrong things they're measuring vo2 max etc cetera, etc cetera, and then that's ridiculous uh b he got into so we were talking about the the n value the power of the study how many people are in the studies and he said the many of these studies the n value was so low that you didn't there might have been a, an effect there but you just couldn't prove that it was more than chance. So going back to what you're talking about with that end value, the, the way I like to think of it is, is think of it like flipping a coin. You flip a coin three times, you might flip heads three times in a row and say, well, 100% of the times it was heads, but that's still chance. You flip it a thousand times and every time comes up heads, that's not chance. <laughs> so you have the same thing. If you do a study of massage with five, six people, there might actually be an effect there, but you can't say it's uh, it's it's more than chance. 
what ultimately happened, I did this uh, interview with them a bunch of years ago. And since then, there's been some really cool new research on massage that said, really, what we're looking at is the inflammatory process in the body. So they started instead of saying, let's do a VO2 max test, they said, let's start measuring inflammatory markers like IL-6 and TNF-alpha uh, in the body. And lo and behold, they, they saw some pretty dramatic uh, changes in the inflammatory profile. So then they could start saying, yep, Saj is doing something. When we interviewed multi-time U.S. national champion Katie Compton a few episodes ago, we asked her if she reads research for her coaching business. Her answer is short, but a fantastic summary of everything we just discussed. Yeah, I, I try. I try my best. Um, I try to look at the researchers. I try to look at the what um, population they use to do the testing, how many people they use for it, if it's men, if it's women, like if it actually pertains to an audience I'm going to work with. Um, I try to look at all those variables and then just see what kind of tests they did um, just to see if it's legitimate. But, yeah, a lot of it is just looking at the source and looking at what journal it came from to see if it's something you can you can trust, you can follow. Um, but, yeah, I do definitely try to pay attention to that stuff. All right. Let's get back to the show. So we've mentioned it a couple times about how hard it is. Uh, to study some things in the lab versus in the real world, but there is still a bias towards lab testing. So let's explore that topic a little bit. And Jim, you want to tell us a little bit of the, the history here? The history or, or just kind of the reasons why people are doing stuff in the lab? Well, it's both, yeah, the why we're doing it in the lab. And also the, there is a bit of an interesting history that because of the certain factors, cycling has really now turned into the default endurance sport. Just starting with cycling as the default is the invention of the power meter. With the power meter, you're able to measure workload really well, whereas for other sports, it's harder to measure workload. So with the power meter, you get a, a, a number. Scientists, researchers obviously love numbers. That's something we can plug in, do some stats on, and tell us whether or not there's been a, a change, a significant change. Cycling's great for that. And we also have People doing a lot of stuff in the labs just because it's so much easier to control things. You don't have to worry about wind. You don't have to worry about uh, rain, snow, anything like that. You can tell people to ride at 200 watts. You can set an ergometer at 200 watts. Now they're riding at 200 watts. Whereas if you're out on the road, if they're going uphill, downhill, that wattage can change quite a bit. So a lab allows you to control for a lot of other things. I think one of the other big things is it's safety. So for, for research to occur, you've got to have it approved by what's called the Institutional Review Board. They want to make sure people who are participating are not going to get injured. So if you take people out onto the road, now there's traffic, there's a chance they could get injured there. So a lot of these, these review boards don't like that. The default, I guess, is just to go into a lab setting. Get some limitations like we talked about but, but uh, you're keeping people safer and you're able to really control quite a bit more. So one of, the, one of my wow moments when I worked in a biomechanic lab is when you are running on a treadmill, you are doing zero work. And let me, let me quickly explain. So the definition of work is moving a mass over a certain distance. Um, so if you push a, a big block 10 feet, you've done X amount of, X amount of work. When you put a, so also know that there's internal work and external work. So external work is moving that, that block over the distance. The internal work is all the work that your muscles are doing inside your body. 
we can measure external work, it's very hard to measure internal work. And when you put a runner on a treadmill, because they are not actually moving, there is no external work to measure. So it does make it hard to do a lot of this research with, with runners on a treadmill. And Jim has gone <laughs> silent, so either I got that oh. <laughs> horribly wrong, which I'll then blame yeah. on my biomechanics teacher, or uh, you're, you're thinking no, I about think it. You're, you're totally right. Um, that, you, you put that really eloquently. I'm not sure if I could explain that, that concept so nicely. My wow, question is, we'd like to say, yeah, of course cycling's better than running. That's what we want to study. My toenails <laughs> prove that. Chris's toenails are falling off because he just did some uh, races. <laughs> Yeah. Leaving them behind in Trevor's living room. Yes. Ah, Jim's yeah. jealous. Jim's jealous. So but so you brought up this point that there there are real benefits to testing in the lab, and that's kind of the default for research. But are there any issues with that? Nate, you had a point that you really wanted to, to bring up. Yeah, I mean I think that the broad trend is that someone can be a great lab performer and then that's not going to correlate to the or real-world performance. I think even if the lab protocol was designed such that it is very replicative, the competition they're trying to perform in, which is probably unlikely, but let's just say it is, um, you still have so many outside variables like uh, technical elements, like bike handling, navigating the field. So on one level, uh, there's an issue there. I also think a lot of it's just what protocols we end up using the most in the lab. So yeah, VO2 max is a big one. Um, it is a number we talk about a lot that is probably important, uh, but also leaves a big gap again to sort of to like the applicable context in which athletes are competing. Um, maybe someone has a really great VO2 max, but sort of their ability to perform under fatigue is super low. Probably not going to be the athlete we expect them to be and uh, maybe misleading in terms of, I don't know, how much importance should be placed upon them. Jim, you brought this up in your notes. There, there's a lot of research that, that uses VO2 max tests as, as a benchmark, but where you can see in, in untrained, VO2 max will improve. Once a, an athlete is of a certain level, really the VO2 max levels off, right? There was a saying we used to have when I was in school. I can't remember what it is now, but it's something like VO2 max gets you in the game, but it doesn't really decide the winner. Right. Well, I think that's a good point, too. Like, once you get over a certain level, VO2 max is probably not your limiter. Right, right. So if we look at all the guys in the tour right now, they're all going to have really high VO2 maxes, but the one with the highest VO2 max, not necessarily the one that's going to win. So VO2 max is, is great for differentiating between, you know, maybe the recreational or couch potato to, you know, a more elite athlete. But once you start to, to limit the group you're looking at, you're looking at just elite athletes, VO2 max is not going to be that great. And kind of like you said, Trevor, to, to get back to your point, these elite athletes, once you're at a really high VO2 max, really hard to find a way to improve that. You've got to look at other ways to improve performance. So it's just the VO2 max level. kind of hits what they call a feeling effect. It's only so high you can go with VO2 max. So this gets back to kind of a theme we've been talking about or, or touching on multiple, multiple times, which is you might have a very well-conducted study, but what is the endpoint? Because that endpoint might not really relate to what you are doing out on the road. So it, you might find a study that says there's no benefits to X, but they were measuring VO2 max in elite athletes. So that might not have been the best metric. 
like I gave that example at the beginning. They were literally doing massage studies and then giving them a VO2max test and saying their VO2max is not improving. So massage doesn't do anything, which, again, completely valid study, completely irrelevant to the real world. That's not why you get a massage. Right. And I I think one of the other things is we've not really touched on. I think we're all focusing on kind of more road racing, uh, high intensity stuff. But, you know, there's other events, the gravel grinders and all that, where it's more of a, a prolonged. I'll call it a moderate intensity uh, event where VO2 max, you're not really doing efforts at VO2 max necessarily. You're going to be doing these long, long endurance miles. VO2 max is not going to matter as much. But maybe there's some other measure that's going to matter more. You've got to make sure you're matching your, your laboratory outcome with, with what you want to be actually improving performance on. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And also big on like how you want to interpret it. Because if they're saying, you know, this bad adaptive training approach, uh, maybe it's even a performance detriment. Like maybe we saw a drop in VO2 max, or maybe we saw a drop in this high intensity time to exhaustion. Um, but you're actually thinking of it from more of like, say, an ultra marathon type event uh, takeaway, then maybe it's super useful. Maybe they need to be looking at something like substrate utilization at uh, lower intensities or economy. So this brings me back to, here's a really good example of what we're talking about here. And, and I'm going to pull up a couple more studies. I, I was so stressed yet so happy last night when I was going through all this research. Just, oh, I remember this study. That's so cool. But there's so many to go through. So here, I'm going to butcher a name to start with. This is cool. Dr. Ronstad, who around 2013 through 2015 did a bunch of research on weight training that really flipped the, the common belief on its head because earlier research had said weight training doesn't help cycling. Uh, and there were a bunch of studies that showed no benefit. So they said cyclists really shouldn't, you know, maybe do a little in the off season, but it's just not going to benefit you. Well, all that research, just like we were talking about, was looking at, they, they would do have cyclists do weight training and then they would test their VO2 max and they were seeing no change. So weight training doesn't benefit you. Uh, there were a couple issues. One is what type of weight training were they doing? And the, a lot of these studies, it was very light weights because they didn't want to, these cyclists were concerned about putting on too much mass. Uh, Ronstead flipped that around, or Dr. Ronstead, and said, no, we're going to have you do some real heavy lifting here. And then his theory, which really came out in his research, is we're looking at the wrong things. Uh, his belief is you're going to strengthen your slow twitch muscle fibers, which is going to improve your fatigue ability and is going to improve your efficiency. And that's what he tested. And that's where actually the, those uh, tests to exhaustion come in. And he found pretty big gains. And so you're talking about an event like a gravel grinder. If I was doing a big, long 10, 13 hour event, um, I would do a lot of strength training because you want that resistance to fatigue ability. You want that higher efficiency for an event like that. But if you did a VO2 max test, completely valid study, but it's going to show no no benefits. Yeah, I think when um, even thinking about just VO2 max and, and uh, efficiency, the other one I like to think about is one of the examples my one of my advisors like to give was the Ferrari versus the, the diesel truck. You got a high VO2 max, you're probably like a Ferrari and go really fast. But you're not going to have that. That you have to go to the gas station quite a bit, right? Um, you have to refuel. You don't have a good efficiency. Whereas the diesel, 
will have a good efficiency, but has a hard time going really fast. So there's different athletes as well. I like that analogy. If you've got different athletes and just focusing on VO2 max is not necessarily the way to go about a lot of the time. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist war and heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. So two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Dr. Sierra O'Grady is a performance coach and physiologist with Team Dimension Data, so he has to read a lot of research. We asked him how he knows what to trust and if there are any limits to the research. So when when we're looking at research, a lot of the times we'll you know do the do the standard comparison. Has this um, research group produced anything before? Let's let's have a look at backtrack their their sort of credi- academic credibility. Then what I do is I go to the results and just give myself, a, give them a sanity check. Are these are these ridiculous? You know, do they match the the population that they've they've said that they they are supposed to be referring to? Then if I'm looking at the sort of you know the believability of the research, you might look at the funding to see whether they've been funded by a specific uh, product. If they're a nutrition, if it's a nutrition paper, um, have they been funded by the the nutrition provider itself and and sort of sometimes that that declaration is supposed to be a um, sort of a hands held up this has been funded by x company but you might always need to take the results with a little pinch of salt but then just I, I i generally read research with quite an open mind and i'm not overly critical but it's very um it takes a lot to convince me to to actually make some sorry i don't know how to word this I'm not overly critical, but it does take a lot to convince me. No, no, that's a good way to look at it or a good, uh, have a skeptical eye is good. Does the nature of the research and the, the level of funding, which isn't great in the research, build any biases into endurance sports research? So, yeah, I would, you know, the, probably the one that's most obvious to me in my current situation would be the, the lack of uh, the lack of research you've done into even elite cyclists and professional cyclists because the because they because they form such a small percentage of the populace. It's, it's very difficult to get sufficient sample sizes um, to, to be published in a lot of academic journals 
unless you've you've you're doing more of a case study. So I would say that having more links between um, professional teams and elite teams, you know, even even sort of non-professional but elite athletes working with universities and research centers that can produce articles about the physiological demands, about the racing demands of of these these athletes that aren't just your normal trained p- participants. They're, they're your elite athletes. They're the guys that are winning races and, and sort of performing at a high level. Let's get back to the show and talk about a little more complex topic, the false null hypothesis. So it sounds like you're talking about false null hypotheses. Jim, could you fill us in a little bit more about what that means? Some examples. Yeah. So a false null hypothesis is where you essentially say that there's no difference or no effect of a treatment, even though there is. So your your statistic or your p-value, the p-value would be above what we said, that 0.05 value. You would say there's no 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 effect, but there actually is one. Let's uh, say you go out, you have everyone do a, a training study, do a, a training intervention, and then you have everyone do a race. Well, that race on the second day turns out to be a lot windier. You're looking at time. Now with that wind, times are actually... Um, going to be similar, even though people are fitter. So you would say you're, you're going to have a false null hypothesis there. So I would say one of the, the biggest causes, and I was just talking about this with the massage studies, of the getting false null hypothesis in, in the endurance sports world is the lack of power, just not having enough people in the study. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One in particular, Jim, as I know you know, is, is funding. Um, another one is finding people. Amazingly, when you put out there, hey, we want somebody to come in and suffer through four VO2 max tests and we're going to take some muscle biopsies, it's surprisingly hard to get people to volunteer. So sometimes you have a study that's a really well-designed study, but in the end of the day, Jim, I think you you had this where you know after months, you'd only had five people participate in the study, and that's not enough to find any sort of trend, right? It can be really hard to find people. Even... Even for simple things like uh, just a VO2 max test. When I was in school, we had a study where we were just having people do two VO2 max tests for us. And we had a really hard time finding athletes to, to participate. It's a boulder yeah. problem. Yeah. <laughs> Plethora of athletes. None want to be involved. But that doesn't fit into my training. <laughs> well, so I have some friends up in Toronto who are trying to do some studies in uh, looking at uh, atrial fibrillation and endurance athletes. Because right now, all as Chris can tell you after writing a book on this, almost all of the research on atrial fibrillation is not with athlete populations. So these people really want to take a look at uh, is atrial fibrillation different in a highly fit population? And they had to find endurance athletes who had AFib. And I know they've been working for nine months now and still haven't found enough people uh, to have sufficient power in their study. And it's getting to be a real concern. I realize everyone's always busy, so it's hard to find time to, to participate in a research study. But obviously, as a researcher, I always thought it was fun. You learn about yourself. You learn about your own physiology. And in some regards, especially these studies we did with these elite cyclists, wow, you're an incredible cyclist. Can we study you? <laughs> I feel like that should be an honor for a lot of people. <laughs> but, uh, it sounds like this is a call out for all Fast Talk listeners to go volunteer at your local university or performance center yeah. and uh, 
learn a little something about the science and and yourself at the same time. Yeah, you might learn something useful. Right, and a lot of the stuff that you did out of these tests, you know, a VO2 max test or a lot of the research that we did or are doing involves body composition these really accurate body composition. Everyone wants to know what the body fat percentage is. These scans, you know, are a couple hundred bucks if you were to walk into a local clinic. Here, you just get them for free. And not only that, you're going to help somebody graduate <laughs> <laughs> on time. And some time some studies did. even pay you. Yeah. Exactly. All, all this being said, if you see a call for a sweat analysis study, run for the hills. <laughs> run fast, run long. All those sweat researchers out there are going to write you nasty letters for that one, Trevor. I signed up for a sweat analysis study, and I have a great picture of me with bags on my arms to catch the sweat. <laughs> I had to do 40K time trials in a heat tent. You mean like your living room right now? <laughs> yeah, basically like my living room right now. And when I got there, they handed me this really long wire with a little Ooh, yeah. thing at the end. And I asked them, what am I supposed to do with that? And they just kind of looked at me and Figure said, it well, out. what do you think you're supposed to do with this? Think of the worst possible place you could put that. And that was exactly what I was supposed to do. <laughs> the the only, only really well for that one. <laughs> only thing worse than what I went through was there was another guy doing it at the same time as me. And this wire is what? And he like put it down his mouth. Feet? No, it was far worse than that. This wire was <laughs> what, what five feet long. He goes to the bathroom. He comes back. Oh. And they're like, where's the other end of the wire? Because they have to connect to the machine. And he's like, I thought I was supposed to put the whole thing in. <laughs> I felt so bad for him. Oh, my God. See, but if you didn't participate, you wouldn't have these great stories. That's another good point. So it doesn't matter what the study is. you got to get out there and participate. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be worth it's it. All, it's always fun. That one aside, you can get some really good information about yourself out of these studies. So it really is actually quite worth participating. You, you can certainly, a lot of universities, you can check your local university and they'll post uh, all their upcoming studies and calls for volunteers. So it, it's worth looking into. So, Jim, another one that can affect this, produce a, a false null hypothesis is the length of the study, correct? Correct. You did. Ooh, I might mess this up, but let's say um, you did altitude. You wanted to look at the effects of altitude training. If you only did an altitude training, if you only did altitude training for a week, you're not going to see a benefit, or you're less like, much less likely to see a benefit. Now, if you had people up there for three weeks, that's when you're going to see more likely to see a benefit. Some of that comes down to funding and just trying to get people to actually participate. It's really hard to make these studies as long as they sometimes need to be. Right. And it seems like the standard length for both an endurance sport or any sort of sports study and also nutrition studies is uh, you know, kind of six weeks to about three months. Some of the really well-funded ones might get out to six months, but you rarely see longer than that. It's just hard to do that to get people to commit, hard to get people to do what you want them to do for that long. Lifestyle things happen with people, you know, they get a job, they have to move somewhere, something changes, they get... They develop an injury. They can't participate anymore. You're trying to minimize all these things so that you can actually get a study completed and, and make some conclusion. So I think one of my favorite reviews is this review by Dr. Larson. That he wrote in 2010 where he talked about this, and he was really trying to show there is benefits to the long endurance ride. Uh, he was really challenging the, the popular notion at the time that 
should be all high intensity all the time. And so he went through all these, the research showing, yep, all the research shows high intensity works and, and endurance rides don't work. But then says, but the interesting thing here is all the pros do lots and lots of long endurance rides. So why is the research showing one thing and the pros are doing another thing? That's where he dived into this. The issue is the the length of the research, that the, you don't see the benefits of this endurance work. It, it's over years. And most of the studies were six months or less and brought up one of my favorite points, which is it's really hard to get people to sign up for a study when your protocol is, we want you to come in and do six-hour training rides on our trainer in the lab for the next two years. Who wants to sign up? So the issue is, you know, that that's a case where there's this really important side to training that is almost completely, is this a word, unresearched? Because it's next to impossible to get the funding and get the people to conduct that research. Right. I imagine... One of the things we haven't really talked about is the research that we're talking about is the research that's published, right? This is the research that we know about. Um, I would imagine that there are some, some cycling federations that do a lot of research in-house and just don't publish it, or at least don't publish it for a while until word gets out about their uh, their findings. So there might be some, some research that's happened with that, but we just don't necessarily know about it. I think it. something... Sometimes with that, it's something, too, where maybe someone's researched it on a level enough that they think they know something about it and think they know something enough about it that they want to consistently put it into practice. But they also haven't technically researched it in a manner that's really publishable um, up to, like, true scientific uh, expectations. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably a federation-type stance, I would guess. Right. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I mean, you as a coach... And, and and having just written a piece about your work with a particular rider, you were you were able to look at a lot of data from a population of riders, U23 athletes, and you were able to see trends there and you were able to draw some conclusions there. But you could never take that information and get it published because it was just not done in a way that uh, a reputable journal would, would publish such a thing. But you you were able to draw very significant conclusions from that information. Yeah, and I think trends is the good point because I think you can look at stuff or look at practices in the field in a manner that you can, in your own confidence, improve your educated guess, but you also maybe can't do it in a way that you can prove you're right. Like, all you can say is, I feel better about what I did. The results were seeming to get support that, but you can't really say it in a way that you can actually... Stand behind it too heavily. You you bring up a really good point that some of the best research on on performance is done by some national federations. That a they're not trying to be published, so they're willing to break a few of the rules. And b they don't want to share their results because this is how they outperform the other nations. I actually you know, I'm not going to mention his name because this was an offline conversation, but I had a talk with somebody who worked at one of the, the, the National Olympic Centers, and they, I kid you not, on trainers, um, basically did a simulated three-week grand tour with, with a bunch of riders. And Sounds fun for the riders. Well, so I asked him what was the, uh, the, the biggest takeaway he had from this, and he was like, 
how incredibly grouchy they were by the third <laughs> week. It's like they were calling me every name in the book when I walked in there. Did they have any, were there any five foot long wires in this? I hope it was a big compensation. That's serious. Well, this was, these were their top, some of their top athletes who were trying to get to the Olympic level, to the tour level. Yeah. So it was kind of more, Less yeah, compensation, more. Them. You want us to take you, get you yeah. on the teams. So this, this is what you got to do. So, so put up with it. I think another great example that that I love of this length of study issue that a lot of people don't consider is all the research on age. So we did a podcast on this uh, what, a year ago now, Chris. The one with uh, yeah, Ned with Ned Overin. <laughs> There's a lot of very recent research that's pointing out all the issues with the past research. And it's that past research that we really use to say, here's age effect. And it's really simple when you think about it. It's nobody out there could get the funding to say, I'm going to take a 20-year-old and watch this 20-year-old until they get to 80. And then I'll publish my results. Uh, so even though these studies were drawing conclusions of here's what happens as you age, they were taking a current 40-year-old, a current 50-year-old, a current 60-year-old, comparing them to current 20-year-olds and not factoring in training science has advanced a lot. The way the current 20-year-old is training is very different from how that 60-year-old trained when they were 20. So you can't compare them and say, here's aging effect for you. Mm -hmm. And so there's now been some much more sophisticated studies and they have been able to actually take some older athletes now and, and who have been racing their whole lives and look at their trends over time. And what they're discovering is this age effect, this horrible, you are just going to fall apart as you get old age effect uh, really isn't true. It was more a result of, of I mean, the, yes, there is an age effect. I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong. But a lot of what they were seeing and attributing to age was actually due to advances in, in training science. Yeah, and I think we didn't really talk about study design, but uh, I think if I'm interpreting this right, it sounds like the old research was really kind of cross-sectional right. design, right? Yeah, so you, you don't have the same people. You're not following them over multiple years. But the people who are, even the people who are older might be different um, than everyone else. So it's hard to study the effects of aging. Yep. It's turning into Jim's real big push to get people to participate in research. <laughs> but, you know, if, you, if you're if you young and you start uh, doing testing now. Jim needs to pay his rent. Please come. <laughs> How do you get to yeah. Muncie again? Where is that? Right. No, we're not, we're not really uh, recruiting a bunch of people right now. I'm just thinking of all the other, all the other grad students out there just really trying to find people. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you get tested while you're in college, or younger or, or whatnot, and you can keep doing testing throughout your life, get an idea of, of what happens with aging. You could publish your own results. That's something that's happened a handful of times now. You might have to be a, a big name in the athletic world <laughs> to publish just your own results. Sorry, Trevor. But it's something that would really help help science, too, I think, to get an idea of, of what the actual effect is on aging and a variety of other health-related factors. You know, it wasn't something that you could publish, but we kind of did that with Ned because he's somebody who's been at, at the highest level throughout his life um, and talked to him about the effects that, that he saw. And what was interesting is what he described as, here's what's happened to me as I've aged. 
was very, very consistent with the, the newer research. He said, in terms of my endurance, that is that has stayed as, as good as it's ever been. My threshold power is still pretty much the same as it was when I was young. He said, the thing that I lost is that big one, two-minute jump. Oral Ned had been in a research study before <laughs> and had some test results. We have test results from him that Neil Henderson did in 19... 19- he was 50 at the time. So we do actually, he shared those with us. There is now some unique ways to do research that weren't available before. Now we record everything we do. We we have these computers on our bike that record every heartbeat, every push of the pedal. And now in a way we can do longitudinal studies where we just ask riders, give us the last 10 years of your data and we're going to go look at it. We're going to go look at some trends. And I actually have a uh, I was going to bring this up a little later, but I have a, uh, a great study from 2011 where they got the permission to analyze all the data in Strava for a year of all the athletes that were on Strava at the time, which was a huge number. And they had some top level cyclists. They had some inexperienced cyclists and they really just wanted to see how are the the elite level cyclists training differently from from lower level cyclists and some of the conclusions were were actually really interesting that I hadn't seen in any other research one was the highest level cyclists were very consistent meaning if they went out for an easy ride it was easy they didn't break 200 watts or whatever it is that, that, that they were doing when they went out to do intervals it was really hard uh, but there was within each ride a lot of consistency the other thing that came out was they did a ton of strength work, both off the bike, but also lots and lots of big gear work. Go hit a climb at 50 RPM at threshold and just grind up that climb. And these are the sort of things that you, if you said come into the lab for six weeks, you, you might not even think to test. This is another way I guess you could look at that that effect of six hours of riding. If you wanted to look at the benefits of endurance, you just get a bunch of data from Strava and you're probably going to have to throw a lot of that data out, but there's a lot of data on there. Well, you know, that's we've had him on the show a few times, is Dr. Steven Seiler, who's a big proponent of this polarized approach and going out and doing these long, slow rides. And not just, you know, he, he studied all endurance sports, so also the getting lots of time running slow, rowing slow, whatever your, your sport is. And that all came from his first couple studies where he went to all these athletes and said, please give me the last year of your data. No, yeah, that's all good. I'd be interested to hear what, what Nate's doing with it. Is Nate doing anything with USA Cycling and yeah, all the data? tell us your secrets, Nate. Anything you can tell us? <laughs> I wish I had some secrets. Uh, no, I mean, I think it kind of loops back into the same idea of, like, there's so much that we do in training application that there's just not real science backing up because the studies are, like, the... The applied practice we're doing is not something that realistically they're going to get the same population to come into the lab and reproduce. Um, I think like the big gear training is a perfect example. There's definitely research out there on cadence, optimal cadence, but I don't know if there's even a whole bunch of research on, yeah, super low cadence, high torque work over time, maybe over a year, um, and like sort of chronic adaptation and response to that, but yet a ton of people do it. Um, which is kind of two sides. The one side is, okay, maybe it's not that researchable, but it's still beneficial. So we're just doing it. 
But the other side kind of feeds into that false rule of taking stuff that isn't research-based, but it's like, this is what fast people do, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I think that argument can kind of go both ways. Um, but generally, I don't know, if there's a pretty common thread, it's usually uh, reliable as something you might try. Yeah, Nate, I think that, that brings up another point related to the Strava study is, and kind of what you were thinking about, I guess, is, is causation versus um, association. Right? So just because a lot of these elite cyclists are doing slow cadence work, doesn't necessarily mean that that's why they're elite cyclists. And we didn't even bring that up when we were talking about things to know about in studies, but right. that's a really important one. Correlation is not cause. Explain that a little bit deeper, because that is very important. There's a, there, the, making a distinction between those two things is, is critical, really, to what we're talking about. Good. So I will use an example. There was a study that showed that cars that had security systems on them were stolen a lot more than cars that did not have security systems. So if you believe that correlation is cause, it means that actually putting a security system on your car is going to get your car stolen, which is ridiculous. <laughs> the real explanation here is if you own a $400 piece of junk, it's not going to have an alarm on it. And who cares? Because that's the sort of car somebody leaves in your driveway to annoy you. They don't steal it. If you have a, and this this study was back, I think, in the 80s. Back then, if you had a security system on your car, it was because your car was a Mercedes and people wanted to steal it. So that was the real reason. But you still had that correlation. And there are all these, especially see this in the nutrition world. There are all sorts of studies that come out where they say, here is a correlation. And then the media jumps on it and says, well, this causes this. For example, they find a correlation between if you eat one more egg per week than other people, this is going to happen to you or that's going to happen to you. Uh, and they make it causal. Yes, there's a correlation there. But no, it's not. You, 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 that doesn't make it a cause effect. You got that right. And I'm just uh, sitting here thinking I need to come up with better examples. Here's just examples all over the place for everything. Well, fine. Shoot me down. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was that was perfect. The, the correlation of my examples and the quality of the show. Well, well actually, the show always sucks, but sometimes <laughs> I have good examples, so that doesn't work out at all. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> right. I mean, I think with aerodynamics, it's massive. There's a lot of people buying stuff that they think is going to make them more aero without having any way of knowing that it is until, except for someone telling them, "These gloves are more aero. They're thirty bucks. They're aero gloves." Marketing. That's Obviously, mark, yeah. they're going to make me more aero, but they haven't tested them. They haven't tested them on them. And, and that's a tough one because that's a tough one in the sense of like to test it and isolate it is time and money and control that most people don't have. But yeah, I think that's a big one. So this is another good example of research. You look at all the, the aerodynamic research. You have to be really careful about interpreting that. I read some of those original studies like there's the good old if you wear an aero helmet, that's going to save you 30 seconds. Well, that was actually so Jan Ulrich was used in that study. It was done on a track in perfect conditions. They used his custom-made probably $10,000 aero helmet yeah. and compared it to a 1970s brick where he probably couldn't even hold up his head. Right. He also uh, probably didn't move his head, like if he right. rode with his head in the wrong position the whole time. So there you had these 
optimal, optimal, optimal condition comparing the best helmet to the worst helmet. And they found the 30 seconds. But then everybody hears about this and they go, sorry, I have to have an arrow helmet because this is, I lost that time trial last week by 20 seconds. This gains me 30 seconds. I'm going to win it. And then they get disappointed. So you do have to be careful. And that aerodynamic research is, is particularly prone to that where, uh, again, you're not really simulating real world conditions. And real world conditions can vary. You can go, someone can test it on the track, pretty much no wind yaw. And then we're talking about outdoor time trials, maybe 15 to 20 degrees of yaw, depending on what's going on. Maybe it's not a difference in that environment. They have all sorts of research on disc wheels. And yeah, in optimal conditions, they're really beneficial. You have one heck of a crosswind, you're not going to enjoy that time trial. Yeah, even if it's more aerodynamic, if it means it's throwing you all over the road, you're probably going to go slower. I had a time trial. First time ever I used an 808 on the front. I had a disc in the back. We had strong winds. And at one point, I just went right off the road into the dirt. The wind just hit me from the side, took me over. And this was a five-minute prologue. That made a big difference. Yeah. Asphalt is almost always the faster line over dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Generally. Almost always. So now that we've talked a lot about uh, some of the research things that people have looked into and have studied extensively. Let's talk a little bit about some of the surprising things that are really hard to measure. And Nate, I know you want to jump in there about spontaneous cramping. You get that question a lot. Well, what the heck's going on? Yeah, I think cramping is super interesting. Uh, I mean, interesting in that it's something that almost all athletes deal with on some level. It's a huge performance impairment if it happens. Um, there's a lot of people out there saying different things about why it happens. Um, but it seems that despite probably thinking about it for 30 to 40 plus years, no one really has anything that they would really lean on with a high level of confidence. Or at one point, if they did, uh, they probably wouldn't as of today. Altered neuromuscular control theory. Yeah. I believe in it. Yeah. You did a episode, a Mythbusters episode, I think at one point, Trevor, uh, we actually had prior Dr. to my time Schwellness on the show. Who's the person who came up with that, that theory. Yeah. So in the short version, the, for a long time, everybody believed it was electrolyte, electrolyte imbalances, depletion. but the, the altered neuromuscular control theory says, and oh boy, another nerd bomb. I love nice. this. Uh, it's <sighs> an imbalance between your, your proprioceptors and your Golgi tendons. Yeah. That's caused actually by muscle damage. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. In practice, it seems reasonable. I've had quite a few athletes that uh, don't train with caffeine, and then they'll take a big caffeine hit on race day and almost always experience cramps if it's not something they're used to. And my feeling would be that allows them to do more muscular damage than they would usually, and that kind of feeds into it. Um, Or transitioning from a long training period without racing to then jumping into racing and doing a bunch of uh, more like altered fiber recruitments than they might do just riding along steady. And like they go in thinking they're really fit. Maybe they've been doing good sustained numbers on the meter, but all of a sudden with just a huge, a huge volume of little uh, effort changes that all feel easy to them at the time, they cramp out of nowhere. So, I mean, but, makes sense. But here's the issue. Cramping is one of these extraordinarily hard things to, to research. And I was actually on a ride with a friend who listened to that episode and got really annoyed with me. He's like, well, if they just did a study of X, they, they could prove this right or wrong. And, and I actually looked at him and said, okay, why don't you do something right now? 
Does what? I go, have a cramp. <laughs> it's like, I can't do that spontaneously. I went, right, that's the problem. Yeah. They want to do this cramping research, but you can't bring somebody into a lab and just say, okay, we want you to spontaneously cramp now. <laughs> and I think just because, and even if you were to take a step further and say, well, we're going to create a scenario that elicits cramps, like you can't do that. Sometimes, right. sometimes they might cramp, sometimes they might not. Uh, so much probably has to do with it that, yeah, you're not going to create a context where you're going to likely get what you want to see. And a lot of the old research on cramping, they actually artificially produce cramps, which that has its limits. Yeah. All right, guys, what are some other ones? How about, what about fatigue? That's something that uh, is pretty hard to study, and there's a lot of different uh, theories out there as to what it actually is. Fatigue is, is a really interesting one. Um, one of the things I, I experienced when I was younger was overtraining. And really, people just don't seem to have a good idea of what causes overtraining, how to measure it, what to do about it, anything really. I think that's one of the really interesting ones that science hasn't had a chance to really to touch and answer that. Yeah, and uh, I would add to that one of the issues is when you talk about fatigue or failure in a race, um, there are a lot of different things that can cause fatigue or failure. It's not just one thing. Right, and that's harder to, to analyze in a laboratory setting where you want to just find one difference. You don't want to have a lot of different variables that are changing because you won't necessarily be able to, to explain what it's causing. It's like the word fatigue is this umbrella under which there are several causes, so it's just not specific enough, and you could research X or Y or Z, and collectively you might consider those fatigue, but in a science setting, they're completely different things. Yeah, so with, with fatigue, it's one of those things where it's hard to elicit in a laboratory setting. But even if you can elicit it in a laboratory setting, does that reflect what actually occurs in the real world when you're out racing or, or riding? That's another another complication with, with studying fatigue and saying what you found in the lab actually applies to the real world. And then that leads to another one is what's your metric for recovery? If you're fatigued and you're beat up from a race... And you we want to do a study on does massage help recovery? Does compression help recovery? What's your metric? And I will say a lot of the old research looked at the effects of recovery on DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, which is something that you don't really have in cycling. So a lot of people are applying that research to cycling when it's not really that relevant. No, I think the metric for recovery one is interesting because uh on some level, I mean, there's things like, I don't know, measuring inflammatory cytokines. That's something like you could do in a lab and maybe say something about with a bit of confidence. But like, are people going to do that in practice? No. I mean, I guess you would try and use it as a like a backdrop for saying the practice worked. Um, but then a lot of it is also, I don't know, a bit subjective maybe or leaves room for a lot of confounding variables like heart rate is a big one. Uh, where maybe heart rate is springing up, but uh, you're just super dehydrated or something, and you're actually now more fatigued. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. It's a tough one to measure. So, Jim, you brought up overtraining, which is also a really tough one to measure, especially because there's actually ethical concerns with putting people into an over a burnout state, right? Right, right. you've got to get the study approved, and you're not... That when you're doing a research study, you're not supposed to be 
harming individuals. Overtraining is kind of harming people. That's something that's hard to get approved. <laughs> so because it's hard to get approved, it's hard to hard to study. Probably probably the reason why it's not been studied. Yeah. Um, I think one of the other things I wanted to talk about or kind of loop back on was recovery. So with with recovery, one of the interesting things is people see these uh, studies about anti-inflammatory supplements or whatnot and how that can improve recovery. One of the things I think about is heart cherry juice or something like that. That can help with recovery. You take all these antioxidants and now you're not as inflamed as you were before. However, to get a training boost, you really need to be having some of this damage take place. I think that's something that gets lost sometimes with, with research or, or people translating the research once it's been published is you've got a time and place where you want to have optimal recovery, a time and a place where you want to have some damage so that you can get improvement. No, that's a really good point. You got to have something to recover from. Right. You need a, you need a signal telling the body to recover and to get stronger. If you're taking away that signal from the body, now it's not going to recover. Or it's not going to, it's going to recover, but it's not going to realize that it needs to improve and get stronger. You're not going to get the, the fitness improvement that you want. When we had Grant Holicky and Max Chance on the show, we asked them their thoughts on the scientific research. Max had a point on, uh, yeah. But Grant brought up a great point that we didn't even discuss the value of the meta-analysis. So my question for you, and Max, Max, I'll ask you this too. Do you read (laughs) the research? And if you do, how do you know when you have a good study and and one that you can trust versus one not to trust? Fake studies? Is that the name of this episode? I did a good... (laughs) I don't read the research a lot, but I did do a very unscientific heat adaptation study on myself. Let's hear about it. Before road nationals, because as as a Colorado, I was born and raised in Boulder, do not do well in the humidity. This explains a lot. It does explain most, most things. I, and I've read, I haven't have read Have you ever research. lived outside of this? I have never lived outside of this. That ex- also explains yeah, a lot. So you went much. to school here. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my, I know. this thing in here. But where was I? Right. I haven't read the research, <laughs> but I've heard that saunas help. I don't have a sauna. You and made I, a sauna. No, no, no. I'm no. trying. This is why we can't interrupt, Chris. <laughs> and you, last year you, at Nationals, Is I there died. saran wrap involved in this? <laughs> or a garbage bag? Saran wrap is bad for the planet. Protect the planet. Anyway. I wildlife had, experience. Hashtag wildlife experience. Wildlife experience. I had a horrible time at Nationals in Knoxville, Tennessee, because of the heat and humidity and me missing an ice sock and water bottle one lap. So... As the mature 23-year-old that I am, I'm going to prepare well for this. But the studies say I should use a sauna. I don't have a sauna. But my apartment does have a hot tub. And that's really warm. So if I just go sit in the hot... I t- asked Grant about it, and he said it's not a bad idea. I didn't say it was a good one. He didn't He didn't say... <laughs> He's having regrets. He's I, having regrets. Yeah. So I would get home, and I would change, and I'd go sit in the hot tub for like five ish minutes because it's really hot and I would almost pass out. And then I was really tempted to jump in the pool right after, but I was like, well, I just wasted 10 minutes in a hot tub. I probably shouldn't immediately cool down right after. I don't know that it worked, but it didn't maybe not help. This is like, if you were to design a study, you would listen to what Max just said and do the exact. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, pretty much. 
I, I only took a couple statistics classes in college. And of one. I, so the he just only, came out the with only N of credit one. I'm going to give him is he got N of one. Yeah. Yes, he did get N of one. That was pretty good. Statistically, Otherwise, that was of no benefit to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that was a total anyway, garbage research, take. Waste research of time. is bullshit. The, the best, Do what you think might be right. The best part of this is that we now have a quote from Trevor that says, this was of no value to this pod. He can put that in anytime, anyplace. You just thought to save that. Uh, so moving on from Max, do you uh, have something useful to give us? I think I, can, <laughs> I can't make any guarantees, but it's more useful than what Max Chance just said. I it is hard to tell which which of the studies that are funded by something specifically, which of the studies are are truly, um, you know, just just for the sake of science. But one of the things that's starting to be done a lot more now is these meta analysis of of all the studies that are out there, and 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 drawing conclusions from that. So that's that's a nice place to go and start to uh, get an overview of five of these studies, six of these studies, all coming from different authors and different uh, origins. And, and I think that's a nice way to be able to get a broader context and maybe both sides of an issue, both sides of a story. Um, but yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time reading the research that's out there and and then traveling down the next two to three places to see what somebody else has said, what are the other conclusions? I, I think the biggest drawaways don't rely on one study to tell you anything. Um, bring multiple in. Don't rely on Max's hot tub study. <laughs> rely on peer review. Other peer reviewed by rely on anybody cat. else's study. <laughs> <laughs> or or have someone in your corner like Grant Holicky who will read all the studies and then I don't have to do it. This is true. Hire yourself a coaches good coach. are valuable. Turns yes. out, turns out they do stuff, and rest is beneficial. <laughs> <Yeah>. Crazy. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Who would have? So if you it? don't want to read the research, hire someone to read it for you. Robot. Yeah. yeah. That's, okay. That's what I do. Next question. When are we going to throw Max out? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. This is this is good stuff. This is gold, baby. <laughs> gold. <laughs> Well, nothing's going to beat Max's study. Let's return to the show where we'll give our favorite examples of both really good and really bad research. Let's wrap up this discussion today with just some great examples of research, whether that's great because it's terrible, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, or great because it's actually great, elegant in a way. So, Nate, why don't you start us off and tell us about a particular piece of research that piques your interest? Yeah. I'll keep it a little broad because I'm not as sharp as uh, Jim and Trevor, so broad is safer. Um, but I think in the field of nutrition and fueling in sport, uh, we've just learned a lot from research, uh, especially over the past 20, 30 years, um, especially with how much carbohydrate intake we can handle during exercise uh, to perform our best, and then starting to define the gap. I think a lot of athletes and coaches look at it as having enough carbohydrate intake that it's not a limiter but then now starting to look at um how much you can use it as a tool to actually perform at your optimal and then how much of a moving target that is of what variables go into it in the sense that you don't just have this optimal plan of this is what i do on race day and you show up and take say 80 grams of carbs an hour for a four-hour event and it goes awesome but that just like um any training we do on the bike uh, training the gut is a really important thing and the gut and the glycolytic pathways in the muscle and ability to use and benefit carb from the most uh, is something that we need to practice in training because our body's going to change our ability to use it. 
Um, and then there's other factors with heat and electrolyte depletion that are going to influence that as well. But I think on a simple level, just the research that's been put forward of how we need to use carbs and train the gut is uh, really important. Jim, what's your example? Yeah, my example, I almost hate to do another nutrition one, but I guess that's one uh, I get along so well. I think alike. But uh, my example is not necessarily good research or bad research. It's just kind of almost a, a tale of, of my own experience of missteps with interpreting research, I guess. So my example is beetroot juice. So folks who maybe don't remember, beetroot juice uh, studied, he drank, it was like a liter of beetroot juice supposed to improve performance, cycling performance. And there was a handful of studies that came out that showed that. So it really started to build up, get some publicity. I ventured into a, the Whole Foods in Boulder. It was a nightmare. Picked up my beetroot juice and, and used it a few times in races, thinking that it would improve my performance. And was really sold on the research. Now, at some point, a study came out on a little bit more elite athletes and showed that it did not improve performance. And so this is one of those times where I was lucky to be a, a grad student and we could actually test myself with and without beetroot juice. So we, we did a few trials in the lab and found that my performance also did not change with the beetroot juice. So that was one of those cases where basically I, I read I read the whole paper, but I didn't um, <laughs> even the method didn't want to pay section? attention to the method. Mm. Yeah, I read the method section, but sometimes you get it in your head that it's going to improve things, so you ignore some of these little mistakes that it said, uh, or these, I don't want to call them mistakes, but these little little things within the method section just choose to ignore. Yeah, it's like the rule of uh, the more we agree with the general idea of the study, the less flaws we see in it, and the less we do it, the more we read it 10 times to find every little detail wrong. Yep. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I wanted beet reduced to work. And, uh, so simple. <laughs> certain it was going to work, but then it didn't. But I will say, you know, that doesn't mean beet reduced does not work. It just did not work for me. It does not work for some populations, but for, for a lot of folks, it does work. If that's the case where something as simple as drinking a liter of beet reduced I can't remember the time, it's like an hour before a time trial or something, and help improve performance. I think that's a, a really cool thing that that science found. Trevor, what's your example? You have how many? Forty-seven to bring to the table <laughs> yeah, today. But the, there is one I've been I've been itching to cover because this is an example of a researcher who actually really tried to put together an extraordinarily creative study. Tried to address a lot of these issues we talked about, like the. Uh, be able to apply it to a real world setting. And in the process of being creative and trying to do something different, made almost every single mistake that we have talked about and drew a horrifically wrong conclusion. And it got published. And it got published. And we were so annoyed by it, I actually wrote a response for Vela News that we put <laughs> up on the, the website because this was a doping study. He was looking at the effects of EPO and concluded from his study that EPO has no benefits, and then went to the press and stated that it was unfortunate they took away Lance Armstrong's wins because EPO, as his study proves, EPO has no benefits. So 
right there, A, you need reproducibility. This was one study. Uh, you can't make a claim like that until it's been reproduced a few times. But his study, he took subjects. And again, when he went to the press, he didn't talk about his subjects. Here's an issue. Finding subjects. We talked about that. Nobody who races is going to volunteer for a study where they go on EPO because then they can't race anymore. So all of the subjects in his study were highly recreational cyclists. None of them raced. So this was an entirely different population. But he did a bunch of lab testing. But he knew that lab testing doesn't apply to the real-world setting, so he also had a real-world test. And I will say, again, when he went to the press, he didn't point out that in the lab, with the lab testing, you did see benefits from the EPO in these groups of athletes that trained on average four to six hours a week. The real-world test, he wanted to see if this would help elite athletes at the Tour de France. So he took these amateurs who didn't race and trained on average four to six hours per week and had them race the hardest stage of the tour. So they did a hundred <laughs> kilometers of rollers to the base of Mount Ventoux, and then they raced up Mount Ventoux. It took them about six hours to complete this race, which was more than most of them ride in a week. And what he found at the top was there was no correlation. The doped subjects did about equal with the non-dope subject. And actually, the race was won by a non-dope subject. At this point, I'm going to say this comes down to pure grit because this was a longer, harder ride than probably any of these cyclists had ever done in their life. And doping had nothing to do with it. It was just who was the most willing to survive to the end. But he then took this, which had all these issues, couldn't be applied from this population to a, a elite cyclist population and said, well, the, you know, they, they shouldn't be banning EPO because it doesn't help elite cyclists. Chris, do you have one? Well, the most elegant research that I've seen is um, the research you and I did with Sepp Kuss and our climbing study <laughs> right here in Boulder. An N of three, all of totally different types of riders from of different ages, uh, different backgrounds, different abilities. One one trial each of <laughs> two different climbs. Non-blinded. <laughs> Non-blinded. And yeah, that was probably the most elegant research I've ever seen done. And it got published in the Journal of Professional... No, in Velenews. What, Jim, what's the impact factor of Velenews? Well, I think it's like a 35. <laughs> like that. I was expecting you to give us a negative, but I'll go with that. <laughs> Our p-value was 47. No, uh... I was, I'm, I can't think of, I can't think of um, a good example right now, unfortunately. No, we'll leave it with our wonderful climbing study, <laughs> which was horrible research because Sepkus beat me. So there had to be something wrong with the methodology. <laughs> I feel like he had to have cheated. All right. You guys are new to this program, but uh, you're competitors. We give every guest 60 seconds to encapsulate everything that we've talked about in the last four hours of recording today in this sauna that is trevor's living room and if you ever read our methodology you would discover that we actually don't have a watch or anything to time anybody with so we're guessing a minute <laughs> we're, we're doing good science here. i'm going to start with nate wilson 60 seconds you're on the clock 
what are your biggest takeaways from this episode, from what people should learn about research, how to interpret it, how to get the most out of it? Read the methods section. Think about the testing protocol and how that might apply in the context that you want to apply it in. Think about time. Think about populations. I don't have that much more to say. Maybe I'm too simple. That's fine. Yeah, I did it in 20. Sweet. We won it under 60. You were even faster. Yeah. That's good in, in, in our world. So, <laughs> Jim, you've got a minute and 40 seconds because we'll, uh, Nate just uh, <laughs> donated all of that extra time to you. So take it away. Well, do I win if I go under 20 seconds? Yeah, well, yeah, but let's get, let's get something good out of you too. <laughs> Because I'm going to beat all of you by not talking. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I'm going to start off with everyone should participate in research. It's very valuable to everyone involved. Um, so participate in research if you get a chance. Um, but other than that, if you're reading the research and trying to understand how it can apply to your training or racing, I agree with Nate. You've got to read the method. Look at the population. Does it apply to the people you want to know about? Um, so is it elite athletes, is it recreational, couch potato, that type of thing? Does the test they use, does that relate to what you're trying to improve as well? Do they do VO2 max, but you're interested in doing ultra marathon? That, that necessarily wouldn't necessarily apply. Uh, I think also the other important thing is uh, looking at how big of a difference you saw. That's not something we really touched on too much, but if you see a p-value that's significant, but you only saw, you know, half a percent of a change, is that important to actually invest all this time and effort to, to changing, your, changing your routine to, to get this improvement? So look at the p-value, but also look at the actual difference that was observed in the intervention. And I'll finish off kind of repeating my first point. Participate in the research. Everyone will love you for it. So when Jim was getting his PhD and we were both living here in Boulder, we would regularly get together in the morning for coffee. And I would always ask Jim, so how's it going getting subjects for your study? At which point Jim would just let out a big sigh and take a sip of coffee <laughs> and that would say it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not just me. There's all kinds of people struggling to find uh, participants for all kinds of different studies. So even if people listening aren't, are athletes. There's still, still fun stuff that you can participate in. I hope if you're listening to Fast Talk, if you're listening to hours of talk about research studies, that you ride a bike or are some kind of an athlete. Otherwise, go do something better with your lives. Is that your one minute? <laughs> no, no, I actually have something. <laughs> Trevor, I'm going to give you 59 seconds. Take it away. So I mentioned at the very beginning of this, the law of the bell-shaped curve, which is a really big thing in research for me, because every one of us has areas where we are an outlier. So while we talked about the importance in research of having big N values, at the end of the day, it's an N of one that matters to you. What I'm getting at is read the research, make sure you look at the methodology, make sure you you understand what the research is saying and whether it really applies. But at the end of all that, you then need to go and take whatever you learned and experiment on yourself. Because while it might apply to most cyclists or athletes, it might not apply to you. And that's all you care about. Well, the thing I would say is 
not everybody that's listening to this show is going to go out immediately and start reading research papers. So what I would like to leave people with is a, a bit of a cautionary tale about not necessarily relying on popular media to do the interpretation of research studies for them. Just because you see a headline that says, you know, like EPO doesn't improve performance and it's in the New York Times or wherever you might see it. And that reputable media site gives it some sense of validity. Uh, they might not know what the heck they're talking about. And you see that a lot. You see that a ton in the nutrition world where but eating butter gives you 20 extra years on your life or whatever the case might be. And then the next week you see the opposite of that it's because popular media journalists don't necessarily know how to interpret this very well either sometimes. So that would be my caution to readers out there is not to rely, sorry, listeners out there is not to rely on popular media to always be making the right interpretations and conclusions from a lot of the studies. You get better at interpreting the research the more you read it. Read a variety of research and you'll get better at understanding the, the fault, the, the positives of research. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at our new email address, fasttalk at fastlabs.com. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at fastlabs.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Fast Labs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Jim Peterman, Nate Wilson, Katie Compton, Dr. Kieran O'Grady, Grant Halkey, Max Chance, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks.